This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Well, um, for those who've been with us since January, you know we have been in a very long series of conversations called Heart Renovation, and we just turned third base and we're running home. Uh, so we are on the last leg of these series of conversations, and I'm really excited. And at the same time, I'm, I'm sad because this has been such a great uh, journey for me just to study and be on and how Jesus, when he comes and he promises us and gives us a new heart. He doesn't intend for that new heart just to stay there, but he transforms it and informs that heart into his image. And so we've had this series where we talked about how every renovation process starts with the design and how when Jesus wants to renovate our heart, he has a design in mind. There's this end goal for him. And that ultimately is for us to look like himself, to, to be formed into the image of Christ. And how after there's a design set, the very first thing that happens in a renovation is demolition. And we talked about how following Jesus often requires there's parts of our lives that he wants to take away, not because, but because he loves us. And we entered in that process. And after the demolition has been done, then we begin with a foundation. And we've talked about how the foundation of, in, of our hearts being renovated is being with Jesus. What Blair was talking about, uh, her retreat, is this isn't something we learned, to, we heard a few talks on and we feel like we've graduated from. This is a lifestyle of constantly sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the foundation of everything that we do. And out of being with Jesus... We enter into the framing of this renovation, um, which we've talked about is becoming like Jesus. It's now the transformation process of him taking us from the old to the new, from dead to alive, and how we are observing the character of Jesus, and as his disciple, we are taking on his character, taking on his priorities. And last week, we talked about how ultimately that is summed up through the idea of love, that Jesus is love manifested to the earth. And so when we become like Jesus, we are becoming love to the world around us um, and becoming love expressed towards the God that we serve and worship. And out of this process, we are now entering into this series called the functionality. These are the things that we see. It's the fixtures, the paint, the floor. When we look at this building, we don't see the electrical. Uh, We don't see the foundation. What we're seeing is the functionality of this space. And so when people look at your life or the life of those who follow Jesus, a lot of times they don't know how much you've been with Jesus. A lot of times they don't know your character unless they've been with you a long time. Immediately what they say is your behavior, which is our last point, which is do what Jesus did. Did anyone ever have the really awesome 90s bracelets, WWJD? Does anyone still have one? I was like digging through my stuff, hoping I could find one of my like old WWJD bracelets. Those things need to come back. So um, just a little, little tip for you, any hipster people out there who want to like start, you know, a little Etsy account, it'll blow up, I promise you. So uh, you'd walk around and you'd have these like WWJD bracelets or seven if you were like really cool and at summer camp. Um, and, and it was like... I remember being like junior high and being like, this is life. Anything comes my way. And I just ask myself, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I'm good to go. And, and there's a lot, there's gold in that. There's a lot of truth in that. And that's kind of what we're diving into. The, the 
the, the problem is it's, it's an incomplete thought. It's jumping to the end, right? We're at the end of this series, and oftentimes it's where people start. Oftentimes people start here. A lot of you guys are like, finally, what do I need to do? Stop talking about just being with Jesus and my character. Just give me something to do. And, and that's most of us because we can measure what we do. We can quantify it. We can make, make ourselves feel better. But Jesus is so careful in just saying, hey, listen, our behavior, what we do is so important. But it has to come out of a relationship. If we behave and act void of relationship with Jesus, then we have just become moralists who gather at a social gathering on Sunday morning. But we are apprentices to Jesus. So as we dive into this next part of our series, let, let, us, let us enter into it with an intentionality that the behaviors, the practices, the visible elements of our faith will always and should always flow out of a deep place of intimacy with Jesus. Um, and they should never stand on their own. This is not our identity. Our behavior is not our identity. Rather, it flows out of our identity, or should, of being with Jesus. And, um, but at the same time, I think there are people who don't talk about behavior at all. And the, the idea of works um, frightens them. And there's, and there's some good reason behind that. But at the same time, Jesus doesn't, has no problem talking about our behavior. There's no problem talking about this is how you are to act. This is how you are to behave. This is what you're supposed to do. He's not, and so we shouldn't be afraid of it either. We just have to make sure it comes in the right order and sourced from the right place. Um, but we are really diving into this, again, like the end of our series, what did Jesus do? It's the last goal of a disciple or an apprentice of someone is not just to be with them and to become like them, but finally to say, okay, I'm going to go do what you do. All right, if you are an electrician and you spend four or five years training under, under another electrician and you learn the trade and you follow them around and you learn how they do those things and you take on their habits and their character, eventually the goal is not for you just to keep learning the goal is for you to go and be an electrician, for you to go and wire a house, go and repair um, where things have, have shorted out. And so in the same way, as we are maturing in our relationship with Jesus, and I'm not presuming it's happened over six months. This is over years. And, and you might be in a different stage than someone else. But where we are heading to is how did Jesus act? What did he do? And what I would like to propose to you this morning, over the next few weeks, it can be summed up in these two words. And these two words are the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, I guess that's three. <laughs> of doesn't count. <laughs> I, I, would, I would argue and say that everything Jesus did, every act that he did, every physical movement choice that he made was under the umbrella of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And so this morning, we are going to be having a, a primer, an overview of this is the kingdom of God. Um, and we'll be spending the next few weeks kind of fleshing that out. How do we live out the kingdom of God? And if you're like, what's the kingdom of God? I'm so glad you asked. Take your Bible out. We're going to be spending some, the next few minutes talking about what that is. And just so you know, a lot of this has been taken from 
uh, some lectures by Dr. Tim Mackey up at Western Seminary that has been really helpful for me. Um, but the kingdom of God, and if you're taking your Bibles, Matthew chapter four is where we're gonna begin. But the kingdom of God is the most talked about subject in all of Jesus' ministry. If I were to ask you, hey, what's the number one thing Jesus talks about more than anything? Most people would say uh, love um, or, or you know, this or that. The number one thing Jesus talks about in all four gospels is the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, it is referenced 1.5 times per page in the gospels, if you were to average it out. It's everywhere. And, um, and, as, this is, and as he's talking about, about this, uh, it's important for us to know that this, this wording is a little unfamiliar to us because we don't live in a time of kingdoms, really, um, unless you are living in, in, in England, another place that has, that still has a kingdom represented. Um, matter of fact, we kind of pushed away from that. So the idea of a kingdom for us is really a foreign concept, which is why we have to spend some time talking about it. But the idea of a kingdom is those two words combined. It's the idea of a king. There's someone in charge and that king's domain. That's the kingdom. It's not a place it's wherever that rule is established. So when I say the kingdom of God, don't think church, uh, don't think a geographical place. Think about wherever God's rule and reign is present. The, and the expanse of that is as expanse as the kingdom. Wherever the domain, the dominion of that king is represented. And so that just kind of for a working definition of what the kingdom of God is, it's the king's domain, his dominion and where that is. Which kind of bears the question, where is it? Where is God's domain? Where is his dominion? And this was a question that was um, a very poignant and important question for those who were in Jesus' time when he came to earth. And so this is where we're going to pick up our story in Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> Jesus has just shown up on the scene. He's just been baptized. He's, he's right now beginning his ministry. Matthew chapter 4, starting verse 12, says, When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fill, fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here it is, if you were to summarize all of Jesus' teachings into a sentence. Matthew did it for us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, when you see the phrase kingdom of heaven, that, that phrase is synonymous with the kingdom of God. And the reason why Matthew uses heaven rather than God is because he's writing to a Jewish audience. And Jews are very cautious about using the, the name of God. And even modern-day Jews, a lot of times, will just write G-D. D. And so by Matthew saying the kingdom of heaven, he's, he's also referencing the kingdom of God. It's the same concept. But I also love this because oftentimes we think heaven is a geographical place somewhere far away. But heaven is where God is ruling. Heaven is also a part of the kingdom. It's not someplace we go and float away when we die. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. Wherever God is ruling and reigning, this is where heaven is existing and he's bringing it. 
So Jesus begins to preach, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What a bold statement to ancient Palestinian Jews who are underneath the Roman rule of that day and have suffered under 700 years of different dynasties ruling over them. And Jesus shows up on the scene, and his opening line, his manifesto, is the kingdom of God is here. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send out to I will send out to fish. I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat, and their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, synagogues, proclaiming, here it is again, the good news or the gospel, the euangelion of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over all of Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So here's the opening scene of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew makes it very clear. His agenda and his message is the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom of God. This is why he's here. And uh, I want to show you just a, a kind of a quick map of um, these are the 12 tribes of Israel, how they were separated um, and notice that Jesus goes up to the north, to Naphtali and Zebulun. This is where he begins his ministry. The reason why this is significant is Naphtali and Zebulun in the north was the very first place, and the, the worst um, damage was done when Israel was taken over 700 years ago. So Assyria came in through the north, through Naphtali and Zebulun, and this was the most dark, horrific, geographical place in Israel's history. And so those who live in Zebulun and Naphtali is kind of living in this place that just never quite regained its um, prosperity, uh, kind of its flourishing. It's always just kind of had this stigma about it. And Isaiah, again, 700 years prior, writes a prophecy. It says, those living in that land, specifically Zebulun and Naphtali, says, those living in great darkness, a great light has dawned. And I love that the kingdom of God that Jesus comes to preach and bring begins in the darkest place. Notice Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't start gathering people that have prestige and influence and authority. He goes and walks along a lake, gets fishermen, some tax collectors, he goes to Naphtali and Zebulun. This is where the kingdom of God begins. Why? Why would Jesus begin his ministry here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, this is going to require us to go backwards. Um, if you want to turn left in your Bible, all the way to the first page of it. We're going to have just a brief overview of the kingdom of God, not just in the Gospels, but in the entirety of Scripture. 
So Genesis chapter 1, this is the first time we see the mention of a kingdom, the idea of a kingdom. And this is when God, uh, the creator, shows up on the scene in all sufficiency, begins to speak the earth into existence in this beautiful, majestic poem. And at the end of the poem, it crescendos with verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created Created them. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful or create and increase in number. Fill the earth, and here it is, and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So here we are introduced to the greatest thing God has ever created. His words, not mine, which is men and women created in his likeness, in his image, image bearers in the world. And the very first things he tells them, he says, you are going to create. You're going to fill the earth. And in your creative process, you are going to rule over it. Now, the, the problem with that translating that Hebrew word into English is the, the really way we should read it is you are going to king over them. You're going to queen over them. Think of a, 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 if someone who runs is a runner, right? Well, someone who is a king, uh, we don't say kings, we say kind of rules, but I think the proper way to understand this, if you read the Hebrew, is he, he creates men and women. He says, you're the kings and queens. You rule. <laughs> Rogers, you, you rule over the earth. <laughs> That's his first language he gives Men and women, it's like, hey, I, all, everything I just created, the gardens, the soil, the plants, the animals, everything you see, this is where you have dominion over me. And he's giving them essentially the role of a manager. He's the owner, he's the creator of it, but he says, you can go and rule it under my thing. And, and as they're living in this perfect utopia where things are in the right order and they're creating and, and, and there's no shame or sin, all of a sudden there begins to be this introduction um, where, where this serpent shows up, right? The, the impersonation of Satan comes up and he begins to have this conversation with says, hey, you know how you're the manager? Maybe you should be the owner. You know how you're ruling and reigning under God's kingdom? Maybe Maybe you know better. Maybe this is your kingdom. You, and look at all the authority you have. Look at all the creative potential that you possess within you. And so in Genesis chapter 3, there begins to be this conversation, this dialogue, where the serpent shows up and says, why don't you eat this fruit that you were told not to eat? The, the one rule they were given, remember this idea of rule, he says, why don't you make your own rules, your own dominion, your, your own choices? And they, and they kind of say, well, I don't know if it's a good idea. And his response in Genesis 3 verse 4, the serpent's response is, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing and defining good and evil for yourself. And in this moment, two kingdoms collide. 
And up to this moment on earth, there existed one kingdom, and that was the kingdom of God. And it was good and right. It's what the Jews call shalom, everything in its right order. And in the moment where Adam and Eve chose in their rebellion to take that fruit, what they began in that moment was not just a bad decision. It was the the birth of a new regime. It was their decision to say, it's our kingdom. And in that moment, God, rather than, rather than destroying the kingdom coming against him, let them exist within their own kingdom. And here we have what we now know as the world, earth, is as we know it became into existence, where it's not like God is absent, but this world he created is now run by us. And as much great potential we have, we all have witnessed how much evil we have the potential for as well. And by the way, this is the story of the scriptures. It's the story of two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of the world that is run by us and by Satan. And it's the kingdom of God and how they relate to one another. So the story continues. We now have two kingdoms kind of trying to to fight for this thing and and God, who, intend, who created human beings to rule his kingdom, now have taken over their own ideas and their own management. And there's this, this tension that exists. And so God begins, rather again than wiping out, says, I'm going to make my, for myself a people that will be set apart from the world. They will live according to my kingdom. They'll live according to my rule and reign. They won't have a king. I'll be their king. Did you know that? You know that the, the birth of Israel as a nation did not have a king for hundreds of years because God was their king? And it wasn't until their rebellion when they, they literally cried out, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king. When King Saul was given to them, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it's a fascinating story. Um, it, from the story, we, we understand that Israel was never supposed to have a king. God granted them their wish because they wanted to be like the rest of the world, but God was always supposed to be their king. The first time we ever see Yahweh referred to as king is in Exodus 15, after God shows up as their king, liberates them from under the Egyptian rule, brings them out of it into the desert on their way to the promised land. And in this song, Moses begins to rise. As then Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. Verse 17, the end of the poem says this, the Lord reigns, or in the other words, Yahweh's is now kinging. Yahweh is king, not Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh was the epitome of what had happened to the earth. Is a person who had become and told the world, I am God. And here, these rescued people, the weakest, most feeble people you could have ever gathered, he rescues them and they sing this song, Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king. And like I just mentioned, they went on this journey of becoming a people and this ebb and flow where as God frees them from the oppressor, as he liberates them, they themselves become the oppressors. And again and again, we see these kingdoms at war with each other and God desperately drawing them and trying to draw them out of the kingdom that they've created into the kingdom of God that was always supposed to be there. In Isaiah 52, fast forward 
a couple hundred years from this point, after they'd gone through a series of kings, David being their most celebrated and prominent, but even he, he had just awful things that he, choices that he made, destructive patterns that he brought into the kingdom. And at this point, the kingdom of Israel under human kings and betraying the kingship of Yahweh has now been obliterated. They've now been taken over by other kingdoms. And this prophet Isaiah begins to start writing down the words of God about a prophecy that someday God's going to bring his kingdom in fullness. And this is what he says in Isaiah 52. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. By the way, that word good news is the same word we read in Matthew chapter 4. The, God, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the good news. So this is the prophecy about this person who will bring the gospel, who will bring the good news, who will proclaim peace, who brings good tidings, who proclaims salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. <clears throat> Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs for joy together, your ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. That song, that poem in Isaiah 52 was memorized by the Israelites. They would sing it and recite it for hundreds of years as they were underneath Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, and now Rome. They would sing the song, someday someone's gonna bring good news, which is a military term that a new king has come. And so you can imagine, generations after generations gone by, but the hope has not left. And this rabbi from Nazareth shows up and his words are, the kingdom of God is here. You could just feel what that would do in the hearts of people who all they've known is slavery. And Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom of God has come near I mean, the energy, the passion, the hope that that would instill in the hearts of people would be unprecedented. And oftentimes we just kind of skim it and reread it, but no, 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 we have to understand for the people who would have heard that message, the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus for him to come and say, repent, wake up, turn around, listen up. The kingdom of God you have been longing for is here, now. And every parable and sermon and miracle that follows this point is the enactment of the kingdom of God in the world. This is why along with this message, people begin to start bringing him sick people because in God's kingdom, there is no more sickness this is why they brought them demon-possessed people because in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, demons have no power. Dude, you see what's happening here? This is why the people start being like, whoa, this, the kingdom of God is here. Let's, let's, 
Let's start bringing him those people who have been underneath the dominion of this world. And one by one, light turns to dark. Life overcomes death. Healing overcomes sickness. And there begins to be this this undercurrent of a revolution that has not stopped 2,000 years later. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom, the one that we saw in the garden, the one we see in Revelations 22, has now been inaugurated and is now on the move in this world. And by the way, my friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are now part of this story. You are invited into, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, you are an ambassador of the kingdom. If you are an apprentice of Jesus, you are now an agent of the kingdom. We are now, we're not called to sit in church and hear messages and sing songs. We are called to be followers of a rabbi who brought the kingdom of God to earth, and we are to do likewise. And if that's news for you, I'm glad. And if you've settled into this complacent, safe faith that you just think that following Jesus to make you feel good, I hope that we would wake up this morning and realize, no, this is about a kingdom. These two kingdoms about war with each other. And to follow Jesus means that we are now about bringing his heavenly kingdom here on earth. This is what Jesus is about, was about, and is about in this very moment. And, that, and, and I know that there's probably a thousand questions uh, kind of racing right now. Like, what does that mean? I'm kind of scared right now. You seem really excited. Um, I am. I'm really excited about this. Um, and then over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack this. But just, we're just going to, a couple of things. We just kind of talked about what is the kingdom of God. Two more things we want to cover. Um, number one is when is the kingdom of God and how is the kingdom of God? When is the kingdom of God? So some of you guys might be in here and be like, so, are you, so the kingdom of God's here why is there still sickness? Why is there still darkness? Why is there still slavery? Why is there still racism? Why is there still um, all of these things that exist in this earth? And, and I want to read you a verse from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8, which is helpful for me in understanding this. Hebrews 2 says this, in putting everything under them, again, this is talking about Jesus, the dominion that Jesus is bringing. God left nothing that is not subject to them, yet at the present We do not see everything subject to them. It's a key verse. You might look around as you drive through San Diego, as you travel the world, as you read the news. You might identify with this. At present, we do not see everything subject under the kingdom of God, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There's a, there's a gentleman named George Eldon Ladd, who about 70 years ago wrote a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, and, and he coined this phrase that has become very popularized, but I think it does such a great job describing it, called the now and the not yet. So when is the kingdom of God? It's now and it's not yet. It's here and it's coming. But don't think we have partial kingdom of God here and someday we'll be evacuated to heaven where we'll get fully God's kingdom. It's actually the opposite. 
Jesus says in his, when he teaches his disciples to pray, pray like this. Pray that your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. It's the reversal of that. It is God's kingdom that is currently happening right now in heaven. It is now bringing it here to earth. And, and is there still darkness? Is there still suffering? Absolutely. I mean, my, my family alone, I could sit here and start crying with the amount of pain we've walked through. But I have not lost the hope that I also know even in the midst of our pain, we've tasted heaven. We've tasted heaven through the faithfulness of Jesus, through the love of our brothers and sisters, through the hope we find in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without this, I don't know if I would even be able to function. So yes, I fully believe, but we also understand that this is a now and not yet. And some of you guys might just be like, I don't, I don't sense heaven at all. And for me, to, let me encourage you, it's coming. If you are a follower of Jesus, it is coming. And our hope is that in your time here, in your open tables, in your interactions with other Jesus followers, is that you begin to have glimpses and tastes of the heaven, of, of the kingdom of God, of heaven coming to earth. And, that's, and that is our job as followers of Jesus. Jordan Eldon Loud says it like this. Love is that gift of the spirit above all others which will characterize our perfected fellowship in the age to come. This love we now enjoy and the church on earth will be a colony of heaven enjoying in advance the life of the age to come. I love that. We have the ability to enjoy in advance the joy of what's to come. Man, if I have a prayer for Light Church, is that anyone who comes and interacts with this community of people would be like, gosh, I felt like I got to have a foretaste of heaven. And that we would know that that's exactly what we're doing here. This is, this, by the way, this is why we worship. It's not because this is what we're supposed to, because worship redirects our gaze to heaven. It reminds us that God is on the throne and we are not. Worship brings us back to a place of remembering, wait a minute, everything that I'm seeing and interacting with, there's a greater reality happening right now. And this is why you might see people raising their hands, weeping on their knees, and you'd be like, man, if you were doing that at taco stand, you'd be really weird. But here, here, this is, heaven is meeting earth. I, I've, I, my hope is that this, would continue, that this would continue to be a community that is so expressive in our worship because I promise you, you will not be hesitant in heaven. My, my prayer is that as you come into this place and you've experienced sorrow, that you would experience comfort because that's what you'll experience in heaven. A comfort so true that it actually undoes the wrong that you've encountered. It goes, it's so redemptive. We can't even fathom all that it's done. And, and lastly, I've mentioned this illustration before, but I think it's the most helpful. One is the, the illustration of D-Day, of when, when the American troops stormed the beach of Normandy. At that moment, World War II shifted. Hitler and his Nazi regime no longer stood a chance of victory. And yet, the the dozens of days, a few months to follow that battle were the bloodiest and most gruesome of all the war. And, it's, and that's, this is the now and the not yet. Victory has been decided. 
Heaven has come and is coming and will come to earth. Yes, but there is, but hell is not going down without a fight. No, neither are we. Right? The selfishness in us, as much as we love the idea of King Jesus, is a part of our selfish nature that actually really likes King Benji. And every day there's a war in my heart. Who sits on the throne? Is it Jesus? Is it me? And this is what the kingdom of God brings. Lastly, last point this morning, how? How does the kingdom of God come? What does it look like? Well, let me read you another passage that Jesus quotes at the beginning of Luke's gospel when he shows up. This is the, this is the passage that Luke highlights. This is, the, this is his opening speech. Goes into a synagogue and he quotes Isaiah 61, which we're actually going to read. And this is Jesus saying, hey, here's what I'm here to do. This is what I'm all about. So if, if you could, if we could just, um, as I read this, look at these words and the power of what Jesus is saying in, in light of this idea of a kingdom. Jesus shows up and sits in the synagogues and he, and he unrolls a scroll and he reads this out. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. What vivid language. This is the kingdom of God. Oh man, this is, this is good news for the poor. It's those who are oppressed and in bondage. It's freedom and liberty. It's those who are mourning. It's comfort and joy even. This is what Jesus, and he rolls up the scroll and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the kingdom of God. This is what we are called to be about. So when you bring out that WWJD bracelet and you look at that, the question is, what does the kingdom of heaven look like in Encinitas in 2019? What does the kingdom of God look like in my family? What is the kingdom of God? What does it look like? What would it have looked like in the garden if it was here today? A world without sin and selfishness and pride and hate and violence. That's what we are to bring. I think something that's important to note is that we can read this and, and, and immediately we can categorize and of this is, this is, oh, that's spiritual. It's spiritual bondage. It's spiritual oppression. It's spiritual mourning. Um, some, of, some people might categorize it. This is, this is social. This is actual prisoners, right? It's, it's uh, power structures and governments. Uh, some people might categorize this as this is relational. It's a relational bondage. And, and I, I would just want, and there's, there's more categories. So I want to say it's all of those. The kingdom of God came to bring redemption in every single sphere. It's, 
It's spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's a physical redemption. It is a social redemptive work. It, it is political. It's, it's emotional. It's relational. I mean, if you can think of a sphere in this world, the kingdom of God permeates all of it. There's not one sphere of your life that you think the kingdom of God, oh, that's just spiritual. Or some people are just like, oh, this is, it's only physical and social. And I just want to say, there's not, an, there's not an arena of our life that the kingdom of God does not want to come after and bring redemption. And so for the next few weeks, what we'll be doing is we're going to be diving into what the kingdom of God looks like in tangible, practical ways. Um, and we're going to be having a series of interviews of people in this room and in the next few gatherings who live this out. And you'll be surprised. You're going to be like, oh, it's easy. Yeah, you're a pastor. It's kind of what you don't know. These are just, these are people who have real jobs and families and kids and, and cars and bills and and they're bringing about the kingdom of God in their places of work and influence and their families and their neighborhoods and the world around them. Um, I'm so excited for you just to get to hear a few minutes each week for some people who are just, and they might not even realize what they're doing, but they're bringing the kingdom of God. And that's how we do what Jesus did. You guys bow your heads with me. If I can ask you one thing before I pray, you can keep your eyes closed. Would, would, you, would you raise the level of expectation in your heart as I pray? Would you just raise it? Just, would you believe that God's gonna hear this prayer as you agree with me? Would you, in your agreement, would you be standing in faith that God is listening to our prayers right now? Father, we come to you the way you told us to, and that is with boldness. We approach your throne of grace right now because of the work of Jesus Christ, and we ask, would your kingdom come in this room like it is in heaven? God, I'm asking if there's someone in here who is experiencing physical pain, would you heal their body? Let I pray if there's someone here who is experiencing mental unhealth, would you heal their mind? Lord, I pray if there's someone here who is under relational turmoil, on the brink of divorce, or experiencing the pain of a breakup, would you heal their heart this morning? Lord, I pray for those who are angry at the way things are, the way that social and power structures are set up. Lord, I pray that you would not only bring comfort, but wisdom and how to bring your light into this world. Lord, I pray for every person in this room who has firsthand experienced the weight of this world. We ask for light to come. We ask for healing to come. Jesus of Nazareth, would you come right now? Holy Spirit, would you touch every heart in this place? I pray that the person who came in this morning hopeless would leave with hope. Lord, I pray the person who came in this morning mourning would leave comforted. Lord, I pray the person who came in here imprisoned would leave liberated. This is your doing, God. This is your kingdom. We welcome it here.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you in our lives. Would you help us get off the throne in our own hearts? Jesus, we enthrone you again and again and again. You are our king. Have your way. Bring your kingdom here as it is, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.